Well, we are nearing the end of our study in the book of Daniel, and today we're looking at Daniel chapter 10. So if you have not already turned there in your Bible, please do that now. We entitled our series in the book of Daniel, Kingdoms in Conflict. And what we've been looking at and seeing throughout our study of this book is that there is a conflict between the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God. Those things are at odds with each other and they clash many times. Now, in one sense, as we come to Daniel chapter 10, we don't learn anything new. That is to say that we see the same conflict being played out. But we do see something different in Daniel chapter 10, and that is that we get a different perspective on this conflict. For most of the book of Daniel, what we have been seeing is the conflict as it is played out by the foot soldiers. So for the first six chapters, we read the stories about Daniel and his friends as they are living in exile, as they're living in hostile territory, and they resist the forces around them. In chapters 7 to 9, we kind of zoom out a little bit and we get a view of the conflict from 30,000 feet. So we see the nations at war with one another and we see this as part of the kingdoms in conflict. When we come to chapter 10, we actually pan out or zoom out even further and what we get now is a view of the same conflict But not just from 30,000 feet, we get a view of that conflict from the heavenly realms. We get a view of that conflict from something behind the scenes. And as we look at Daniel chapter 10, I think we might be helped by this note from the ESV study Bible where it says this. The conflicts on earth, of which there are many, reflect the conflicts in the heavens. And these conflicts will continue until the end of time when God will eventually and ultimately triumph. That's what Daniel chapter 10 is about. It is about the way the conflicts between the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God are actually, the ones that we see on earth are actually just a reflection of a greater conflict that is taking place in the heavenly realms. So let's read now Daniel chapter 10, and I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety for you. It is God's word, so hear that reading. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold, from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves." So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. 
Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling to my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Well, as we consider this chapter, I want to draw your attention to three three truths that we discover about the nature of our conflict. And the first one is that we are engaged in a long conflict. And we can see this in a couple of different ways in this chapter or in this passage. We see it firstly in the when, the where, and the what of the conflict. The when is given to us in the first part of verse 1, where it says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. So why do we get the historical timestamp, or why is that historical timestamp in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, why is that important? Why would it matter that Daniel received this vision at that time? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it reminds us just how long this conflict has been going on for Daniel, because it takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the book of Daniel, back to chapter 1, when Daniel and the other exiles were first brought to Babylon, and when he was given that name that he's referred to here, Belteshazzar. And when we read this notation in chapter 10, we're supposed to understand that that was a long, long time ago. And if you remember, Daniel was just a teenager when he was brought into exile, and his exile has lasted 70 plus years. So he is now old and well advanced in years. But it's also significant because of what was actually happening in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, when it says the third year of Cyrus, it means the third year that Cyrus started reigning over Babylon. 
just a historical time period, is that Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And in that year, in 539 B.C., he issued a decree that all of the Jews, all of the Israelites who were living in Babylon could return home to Israel and they could rebuild their city. And some Israelites did just that. A group of about 50,000 of them returned to Israel to rebuild. Now, Daniel was not among that group. And we know that because of the when of this vision. He tells us he was standing, in fact, on the bank of the Tigris. So Daniel is, in a sense, still in exile after all these years. Now, maybe he was just too old to make the trip. Maybe he felt like he was more needed in the place where he was. We don't actually know. What we do know is that after 70 years of exile, after several regime changes, and even three years after this decree from King Cyrus that the Israelites could go home, things did not look any better for God's people. Daniel may have been hearing reports of what was happening in the lives of those who had returned to Israel. And it's sought to rebuild. The book of Ezra describes the situation like this. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So that's what was happening in Israel. There's still opposition. So put yourself in Daniel's shoes or even just the shoes of the average Israelite for a minute. The thing that you have been praying for, the thing that you've been hoping for and longing for has actually come to pass. There's a regime change. There's a decree that you can go home again. But you soon realize that you're actually in the the exact same conflict you've always been in. No matter which kingdom of man occupies the place of power in the kingdoms of man... There's always a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And see, this should serve as a reminder to all of us. Our hope is not in a political party or a political leader. They come and go. Some of them are better than others. Some of them are worse. Their ultimate agenda is not the kingdom of God. So that's the when and the where of Daniel's vision. But we also get a glimpse of the what. What exactly did he see? The second half of verse one says this. And the word was true and it was a great conflict. So we don't get the actual content of this vision until chapter 11. But the summation of the vision is that the future involves great conflict for God's people. That word that's rendered conflict or great conflict is translated as army or warfare in other places. But it also has an extended meaning of hard service or great suffering. Daniel looks into the future and he sees that this is what it holds for God's people. Conflict, great suffering. Now, we'll come back to to exactly what is going on later in the chapter in a bit. But it's interesting to note what the angelic figure says to Daniel in verse 20. And what he says is this. 
Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. See, Babylon is finished. There's a battle with the prince of Persia. But when that one's over, there will be another battle with the prince of Greece. We're engaged in a long-standing conflict. It didn't start when Daniel was carried into exile. It didn't end when Cyrus said that the Israelites could go home again. It didn't end even when Daniel died or when the Persians fell to the Greeks. The truth is this conflict started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, God says this to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The conflict goes all the way back there. And I think a further truth is that this conflict will continue throughout the ages until God makes an end of it. And the reason I'm laying stress on the conflict we find ourselves in is so that we are not surprised by it. We should expect trouble in this world. Jesus said it this way. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation, trouble in this world. Or listen to the message that Paul and Barnabas brought to the early church. In Acts 14, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Charles Spurgeon once told of a Mr. Mack, a Baptist minister in Northamptonshire, He had been a soldier, but upon his release from military service, he became a minister. And on one occasion, when he went to preach in Glasgow, he went to visit his aged mother. Though he had not seen her in years, he knew her the moment he laid eyes on her, but the elderly woman did not recognize her son. Now, once in his childhood, his mother had accidentally wounded his wrist with a knife. And to comfort him at that time, his mother had exclaimed, Never mind, my bonnie bairn. Your mother will know you by that when you are a man. So when Mac's mother would not believe that a fine-looking minister could be her very son, he turned up his sleeve and cried, Mother, mother, do you know that? In a moment, they were in each other's arms. And the point Spurgeon was making was that affliction is the identifying mark of God's people. In this world, you will have trouble. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Don't be surprised by them. So we're engaged in a long conflict. Second truth we learn about conflict is that we're in a potentially frightening conflict. Now, a few weeks back when we were in chapter 7, I told you that the future is ultimately, but not immediately, friendly for God's people. And it's the not immediately part of that equation that causes us some grief or some trouble. 
has the potential to frighten us. And we're not being wimpy if we feel some of that. Daniel experienced the same thing. Here's what he said in chapter 7 after receiving a vision. He said, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. In chapter 8, he has a vision about a ram and a goat. And after seeing that vision, he says this, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. And here in this chapter, what Daniel tells us is that he is in a period of mourning for three weeks for his people. Listen again to verses 2 and 3. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So Daniel takes a look at the future and he's grieved by it. He's alarmed. As he surveyed the current and future state of his world... Daniel felt a deep sense of grief in his spirit. The battle we're in is potentially frightening. Daniel gets a vision or visions of the future and what he sees frightens him. Now, we aren't given the same privilege. I mean, we are given a glimpse of the future in kind of broad brush strokes, but we don't know what the next 70 years will hold. We don't know what kingdoms of man will come and go. But sometimes we look at the trajectory of where things seem to be headed, and it's a bit frightening. I'm not wanting to turn this into a political sermon. That's not my goal. But on the whole, is our political climate more friendly or less friendly towards Christians? Well, you might remember that in 2018, the federal government attempted to issue changes to its summer jobs program that would have meant that any organization receiving funding, that's any charity, would have to sign off on a clause indicating they were in support of the government's policies on abortion. Now, they eventually retracted that, but you can see their intention. You can see where things are moving. This, this year, it's been the passing of bills C6 and C7. The former is a ban on conversion therapy, but it's not defined in any way. The latter bill is related to medical assistance in dying, Bill C7. And that bill is at odds with our view of the sanctity of human life. It puts Christians in working in some areas of the health care industry in an ethical conflict. Last Friday, Bill C-10 was introduced, which would give government the power to restrict what you can and cannot post on social media sites, video sites. Now, I don't post a lot of gospel TikTok videos, but restrictions on free speech do not bode well for Christians. And I would say the current COVID restrictions we find ourselves under aren't exactly friendly to churches. We're not considered essential. Fitness clubs remain open for exercise. Schools remain open for learning. You can spend time milling about the mall or spending an afternoon shopping for a bathroom vanity. But churches remain closed for public worship. The point is not a particular leader or party or one piece of legislation, but the prospects do at least look potentially frightening. 
But I say potentially frightening because of what we actually read here. Daniel has a divine encounter. Listen again to verses 5 to 9. It says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. And I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and I heard the sa- and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Now, scholars are divided as to the identification of this individual. Was it an angel, or was it a sort of pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? Now, the latter, is, latter view is usually adopted because the description here is similar to the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, a voice like the roar of many waters. But I actually lean towards seeing this figure as an angelic figure who shares some of the same divine features of Jesus. And I say that in part because this passage goes on to tell us that this figure needs to enlist the help of the archangel Michael in order to defeat or withstand the prince of Persia. But whether it's the Lord himself or one of his divine messengers, Daniel falls flat on his face before him. And see, if our picture of an angel is sort of a little blonde boy sitting on a cloud playing a harp, we need to rethink that. When Daniel gets this vision, he is terrified. Daniel was frightened by what he saw when he got a glimpse of the future, but he is terrified beyond measure when he has this encounter. And those who are tempted to think that they can kind of just, you know, relate to God in casual terms might want to reconsider. A man once waited to speak with John MacArthur after a meeting where he was preaching somewhere, and he told him, that he often saw the Lord, saw visions of him, and that Jesus talked with him often. As an example, the man said, you know, he'll often come and speak to me while I'm shaving. And John MacArthur's response was, look, I I just have one question for you. Do you stop shaving? But Well, you can see his point, right? Like if you have an encounter with Jesus... You don't just kind of continue to go about your business in the usual way. I like the way Dale Ralph Davis said it. He said, I don't suppose one can decisively invalidate such claims, but we can suspect them. The near flippancy is so unlike what we meet in the Bible. In the Bible, one doesn't chat with Shaddai. Even when one of the Lord's angelic servants brings the revelation, that experience is not just the neatest thing but a devastating experience. And I point this out because this terrifying visit from a divine being is actually the thing that brings comfort to Daniel, brings him assurance. See, the future might look potentially frightening, but not nearly so frightening as the Lord. I mean, the the moon looks like a really bright light until you see the brilliance of the sun. 
I'm reminded of the story we read in Mark chapter 4, where it says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, that's Jesus, had said to them, to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then it says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see the, the, the move here, right? The disciples see this great windstorm that comes upon them and they are afraid. But when Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea, they are greatly afraid. They're terrified. They went from fear of the storm to great fear of Jesus. And Daniel experienced the same thing. He goes from fear about the future to great fear of his God. So look back at our passage now. Listen to verses 10 to 12. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So this figure helps Daniel, who is still trembling up to his feet. And notice the assurance that he gives to Daniel. Notice the word of assurance. Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. I mean, is that not amazing? Daniel was fearful of the future, then terrified of this being. And the first words given to him are an assurance That God loves him. And not just that he loves him, but he greatly loves him. That same thing happens again with the other figure who appears to Daniel later in the chapter in verse 19. We read this. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Do you know what we ought to remember? As we stare out to an uncertain future, potentially frightening future. It's that we are greatly loved by God. Listen to the words the Apostle John wrote to a group of Christians who were living in a culture that was hostile to their faith. He said, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. See, sometimes what we need to do is we need to remind ourselves of this most basic truth of the gospel. The future might be potentially frightening, but we are loved by God. There's a second word of assurance in the angel's words. Listen now to verse 12. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, 
For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Your words have been heard. God hears our prayers, and even more than that, he responds to them. I have been sent because of your words. One of the very first things we learn about God in the Bible is that he is a speaking God. He speaks things into existence. But one of the other things we learn is that he's also a hearing God. He hears us as we call out to him. Listen to these words from another time in Israel's history, another time when they were experiencing difficulty, when they were enslaved in Egypt. In Exodus 2, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So what we need to remember in the midst of a potentially frightening future is that God loves us, that God hears us. And this brings us to the third thing we need to understand about the nature of our battle. And that is that we're in a spiritual conflict. I mean, this is kind of a wild passage. Like what exactly was going on in verses 12 to 14? After saying that he hears his prayer, then it says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. I mean, what exactly was going on there between this sort of standoff, between this individual and the prince of Persia, and then Michael coming to help? Who is the prince of the kingdom of Persia? Is it just the king's son? Well, that doesn't seem to be the case. And if it were, how could he hold up this angelic figure for 21 days? So enter Michael. That's the archangel Michael, who's referred to here as one of the chief princes. So the prince of Persia, along with the prince of Greece, who comes later in the chapter, appears to be a demonic figure of some sort. And what Daniel chapter 10 helps us understand is that while there's a physical battle taking place between the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God, there is a spiritual battle that is taking place behind the scenes. So what are we supposed to do with that knowledge? Well, I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis said in the introduction to his book, The Screwtape Letters. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. That's actually the right balance to strike when it comes to these types of things. And we get into trouble when we fall to the ditch on either side of this road. I mean, on the one hand, there's a tendency in some circles to basically dismiss the supernatural altogether. We look for a human explanation for everything. We think that the explanation for every human behavior is medical or psychological. 
But there are some aspects of evil that we see in our world that I don't think can be explained apart from some kind of demonic or satanic influence. I mean, what, poss- what possesses certain individuals from inflicting as much death and destruction as they can possibly imagine? Is it just pride? Is it just a lust for power? Is that the only explanation? It's not talked about much, but I think we greatly underestimate the reality of this in our world. Whenever there's a shooting rampage or killing spree, you hear news outlets trying to put the pieces together, trying to get to the root of why do these sorts of things take place? What would possess a person to open fire in a kindergarten class, for instance? We're puzzled by stuff like that. So we look for scientific explanations. We look for psychological explanations. What triggers that kind of behavior? Now, I'm not trying to oversimplify a complex issue, but don't you think at least part of the explanation for that could be something greater than that, that supernatural forces are at work? You know, a few years ago, I went through a a, a bit of a history kick in my reading. And one summer, I read four books by Eric Larson chronicling specific events in history. These books were about pleasant things like the sinking of an American cruise liner, The Lusitania, along with its 1,959 passengers in 1915. I read a book about the rise of the Nazis to power in Germany in the 1930s. A book about the fiercest storm that ever touched down in the United States. It wiped out Galveston, Texas, which was at the time poised to become the next New York City. But the book of his that I found most disturbing was a book entitled The Devil in White City. The backdrop to the story is that the World's Fair took place in Chicago in 1893, but woven into that story is the story of H.H. Holmes, who operated the World's Fair Hotel, which he used to lure young women who had come to Chicago seeking employment. It's estimated that he tortured and killed somewhere between 27 and 200 victims. And that book gives you some insights into the way his mind worked, the pleasure he took in what he was doing, But as I read it, I couldn't help but think that there was more at play than some type of personality disorder. The kind of cruelty carried out by this man and others like him must have its source in something demonic. And we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss those things out of hand. Now, the other tendency is also common. I mean, it's the tendency to see a a, a demon lurking under every rock, behind every tree. Can't stop smoking? Must be the demon of nicotine. Addicted to alcohol or gambling or pornography. It's not really your fault. It's the demons. Is your home not a place of peace? Maybe there's territorial spirits involved. That kind of thinking was popularized in a series of books written in the late 1980s and and early 1990s. This Present Darkness, Piercing the Darkness. Those books were filled with lots of conjecture, little substance. So that's an error to avoid as well. So we know what errors to avoid. But if we read Daniel 10 correctly, there is a spiritual battle that is taking place and we are caught up in it. But again, what are we supposed to do with this? I think what we learn here is that the church's experience on earth, what we experience is really an an earthly outworking of a parallel conflict in heaven. And we don't just learn this in a few obscure verses in the book of Daniel. The New Testament actually teaches us the same thing. 
That's why Paul says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness in the heavenly places. And elsewhere, Paul speaks about the spiritual forces that were at work in relation to his own ministry efforts. He said this, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but... Satan hindered us. Now, we don't know how all of this works, but we are in a spiritual battle. And if that is the case, then how are we supposed to engage in this battle? I mean, Daniel's an example for us, isn't he? At the start of this chapter, he's in mourning. He's fasting. He's praying. And it's because of those prayers that this angel is sent and comes. So let me ask you, is this how you are engaged with the world around you? When the world looks like it is spiraling out of control, When the culture seems like it's headed in a dangerous direction, does it make you fall on your knees and call out to God? Or what about at even just a a, a different kind of level, a more personal level? Your neighbors who think differently than you do because they're lost. Are you praying that God might open a door conversation. Have you ever thought of fasting for that very thing? Have you ever thought of fasting for your country, your nation, for the church? If the battle we are in is spiritual, then the method for us to participate in that battle is spiritual as well. And Daniel chapter 10 calls us to that. We ought to engage in this battle with every part of our being. We ought to fall on our knees and pray and plead with God that he would help us in the midst of the conflicts we find ourselves in. So let's pray together. Lord, even today we've been singing that the battle belongs to you. It's not a conflict we started If it were up to us, we would love not to be part of any conflict. And yet, Lord, we find ourselves in one. We know that the world is in opposition to you. We know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God. And so, Lord, we pray that in the midst of this battle, we, like Daniel, would find you faithful, that we would be comforted by your assurance that you love us, that you're with us, that you hear us. And so, God, we call out to you. We call out to you for your grace and your wisdom in navigating these times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.